the Bible is a book written over 1,500 years by dozens of different authors who came from very different socioeconomic backgrounds from a fig farmer to a king. And we should place ourselves under the authority of God's Word and obey it. What is the Bible all about? Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. On today's broadcast, we continue our Unwrapped series, Uncovering Foundational Truths in the Bible. Today, you're in for a treat. Over the next couple days, David gives us an overview of the entire Bible. Here's David with part one of his message, The Bible in 35 Minutes. We're doing this series on Unwrapped to help you love the Word of God. In the early church, Christians were sometimes derisively nicknamed people of the book. You can hang that moniker on me anytime you want to. We should be people of the book, and we should place ourselves under the authority of God's Word and obey it to be people who are distinct and different and make a difference. So today what I want to do is to go through the Bible in 35 minutes. Yeah, it's a challenge. I'll do it, though, I promise. Uh, and, and I think it'll give you an historical perspective. It's a skeleton, and now for the rest of your lives, you should be able to put meat on the bones uh, as you make God's Word special in your life. Um, before I begin, let me just say this. Last week, I asked the question, why should we believe God's Word is God's Word? It's because of Jesus. If you believe Jesus is God in human flesh, you must have His view toward the Old and New Testaments, which was the authoritative Word of God. And if Jesus is God, I'm going to have His view toward everything. Also, today we're going to look at another reason to believe that God's Word is God's Word. It's because of its amazing unity. It's amazing unity. Uh, the Bible is a book written over 1,500 years approximately by dozens of different authors who came from very different socioeconomic backgrounds from a fig farmer to a king. It was written on three different continents in three different languages and yet, here's the amazing thing about it. Over 1,500 years with all those facts, it has one unified message. What is that message? It's a message basically that the Bible is all about salvation history. I've given to you this outline that I've put together, and I hope you'll be able to use it in years to come as you put meat on the bones as we now walk through the Bible in 35 minutes. The Bible says about itself... All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God breathed. God breathed. So what is the Bible all about? The Bible is a book about salvation history. It's about how God intended to save a human race that was all heading toward hell. That's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is a book about salvation history, from Genesis to Revelation, which we're about to cover. Here we go. The Bible begins with the Pentateuch, the Torah, and the Law, the first five books of the Bible. That's the first division. We begin with Genesis 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth. He created it all good. After every single day, he declared creation operating the way he wanted it to operate. There is perfect original intent in the way that God had his world operating. There is, first of all, harmony with God. Between Adam and Eve and God, there's perfect harmony. Uh, they walk together in the garden. They communicate together. There's a personal, living, intimate, dynamic relationship between Adam and Eve and God as God originally intended. 
Secondly, there's harmony with others. Adam and Eve got along perfectly. Can you imagine? No marital strife. They loved each other deeply, and they had in their marriage what God intended between a man and a woman, a committed heterosexual monogamous relationship, Genesis 2.24, and the two became one. They were one with one another. There was harmony with nature. Nature operated the way God originally intended it to operate. And finally, there was harmony with self. Inside self, where there was peace because everything was working harmoniously. Now, when God created Adam and Eve, he told them, you can eat of any tree in the garden except that one. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The moment you eat of that tree, you're declaring your independence from me. And you're saying that you can define what's good and evil. And when you do that, you need to know two things will come into the world that are awful. There'll be spiritual death. You'll be disconnected from me. No longer will we have that personal, living, intimate, dynamic relationship. And secondly, there will be physical death introduced into my world. Death is an evil intrusion into God's once perfect created order. He never intended physical death to be a part of his original intent. So God warned Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for at that point you shall surely die, physically and spiritually. Now, at some point in the expanses of eternity, one of the angels created by God named Lucifer, who was one of the four archangels, I think, led a rebellion in heaven because of his pride and his arrogance, his desire to sit upon the throne that Jesus himself held. He rebelled and took with him one-third of the angels who became the demonic hordes, his army to rebel against God. Satan has this job description, to kill, steal, and destroy that which God has created. So in Genesis 3, after Genesis 1 and 2, perfect creation, original intent, the kingdom of God operating as God wanted it to operate, the evil one took on the form of a snake and spoke to Eve. Now, some people say a talking snake in the Bible, that's reason enough not to believe in it. Are you aware that in occultic activities today, that when they drum it up, the appearance of Satan, he often appears as a serpent and speaks to people gathered to worship him. Moreover, if you go to some occult activity, you will see the leader of the occult in a king-like fashion who has a crown upon his head. There's often a snake that comes from it. The snake somehow was what the evil one chose to speak through, maybe in an apparition, maybe really, but he spoke to Eve. And his temptation was basically to doubt God's word to doubt that what he was saying was true. And he basically said, God's the celestial killjoy. Eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you shall surely be God's. And she bit the fruit. She rebelled against God, gave it to Adam, he followed suit. And sin was introduced into the world in Genesis 3. Every part of God's once originally perfect creation is now permeated with sin. And now what happens in God's world because of this introduction of sin through Genesis 3 is spiritual death, no longer the relationship with God as he loved, as he intended. That's why he created us, was to be in that love relationship, to share in the Godhead's love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that's now been severed because of sin. And also physical death. As Adam and Eve were created never to die, they will now die. And all of their progeny after her, who are born into this world, experience spiritual and physical death. Moreover, there's disharmony now in God's creation. There's, first of all, disharmony with God, alienation with him. 
disharmony with other people, divorce, broken relationships. There's disharmony with nature. There's now tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, never a part of God's original intent. But here because of the fall, and there's also disharmony with self. Where there was once peace, there's now guilt, shame, depression, discouragement. Then we have in, in Genesis 4 through Genesis 11, examples of those disharmonies being lived out in God's world. First of all, Genesis 4, in the disharmony with others. We have Cain hating his brother. The first murder in the history of the world happened when Cain, in his sin, killed his brother Abel. Genesis 5 through 9, there's disharmony with nature. There's now a flood narrative that's told. There's Genesis 11, an example of disharmony with God himself as people around the world come together to build a tower in pride of their own human ingenuity toward God. In their pride, they said, we will be God. And of course, God came and said, I am the only God. And he scattered the people all over the world. And from this tower called Babel, people started babbling in different tongues, in different languages. There were different ethnicities and cultures now scattered all over the world. And there's no unity of love to God himself. Now, you need to know the character of God that's revealed in this book. God is described as good. He's compassionate, loving, and kind. He's filled with all graces. And so he looked down upon this human condition. And he could have left us to go to hell, but he loved us so much he wanted to bring us back into relationship with him. So he began with Genesis 12, the first movement of salvation history to save us from our sins. And he did so by calling a man named Abram, later called Abraham in the new covenant with God. And he said, Abram, you living in Ur of the Chaldees, which was present day Iran, I want you to leave this country where you are and go to a country I'll show you where it is. It's a promised land where I want you and your people to dwell. And I'm entering into a covenant with you. Notice it's God the one pursuing Abraham. God loves us so much he always pursues us first. And he enters into this covenant that's described in three of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises Abraham and his wife Sarah that they'll have a son. And this son will be the continuation of salvation history until one day all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, Abraham and Sarah have to wait for 25 years for that child ultimately to be born, but finally he is. His name is Isaac. His name means laughter because that was their first response when they knew they were going to have a child after all those many years of waiting. And Isaac eventually did come into the world. And Isaac married Rebekah, and they loved each other as God intended marriage to be. Well, then they had two children, one named Jacob, the other named Esau. 
Esau was born first. He had the birthright for the continuation of all the blessings through the lineage of Abraham to Isaac. But Esau was a man after the flesh. His name means red, hairy. He was just after the things of this world. He didn't really have a heart for God. Jacob, on the other hand, was not altogether much better, at least initially. Jacob's name, in case you don't know, means trickster, shyster. For all you named Jacob or Jake out there, so sorry. The rumor is Jacob came out of the womb going, take a card, any card, any card at all. (laughs) But he had a heart for God. Beneath all of that tricksterism, he had a heart for God. So God chose Jacob over Esau by God's divine sovereign choice to be the one through whom salvation would continue. Uh, Jacob left home running away from Esau who wanted to kill him when he stole the birthright from him. And he fell in love with a gal named Rachel. Rachel, the love of his life. But Jacob the trickster got tricked by Rachel's father who made him marry Leah first, not quite as attractive. So he did so, married Leah and Jacob. It's the first introduction in the Bible of polygamy. And some of you ask me all the time, how do you justify marriage as God intended it with polygamy being in the Bible? Well, I'll talk about it more in a couple of weeks. I'll answer that question in greater depth. But the bottom line is anytime you see polygamy talked about in the Bible, it doesn't go very well. And when you look at the story, always ask the people in the story, now how's this working out for you? It's not working out well. It's disastrous, as it was for Jacob. But what's beautiful is that God takes the evil intentions of our heart and all the broken places that live within us, and he works them together for good. He's working our worst problems out for good. So through the marriages to Leah and Rachel, they had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, all a part of God's salvation historical plan. The second of the last of these sons was named Joseph. He was especially gifted. He knew God had a special place in his life. One day he'd be elevated above his brothers. He saw it in a dream. He told his brothers about it. They didn't like it one bit. They threw him in a pit to remain there to die. But an Egyptian caravan came along and took him into Egypt. He remained there working in a house called Potiphar's house. He was there for some years and raised himself up to a level of success. He got tempted by Potiphar's wife. He refused. She didn't like it. Had him thrown in jail. He's in jail for several years. He comes out miraculously and through God's historical salvation processes ultimately raises Joseph to be the prime minister of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And while he's there, his brothers are experiencing a famine. They come to him. They don't recognize him asking for food. He recognizes them. He asks them to go through all kinds of different gyrations until finally he identifies who he is to them. They're convinced he's going to kill them. But he doesn't. In one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In salvation history, folks, God's taking all the evil of the world globally, locally, personally, and he's using it for good because he's the one who oversees salvation history. So what you have from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50 is the formation of the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And through those four, God forms a nation called Israel. In fact, he changes Jacob's name from trickster to Israel, which means prince of God. 
He has a plan for forming a nation in a promised land. And through this nation, he will bless every nation on the face of the earth. That was his promise. Then at the end of Genesis 50, you have Jacob coming to Egypt in the famine. They stay in a land called Goshen, and they're happy together. Genesis ends. There's 400 years of silent history between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1. During that time period, the 70 Jews in Egypt grew to 3 million and became slaves. Genesis, Exodus 1 opens up with the people of God crying out to God going, set us free, set us free. And God raises up. Notice who initiates it. God initiates it by raising up Moses, a Jew, raised in Pharaoh's court, kills an Egyptian, runs into the wilderness and remains there 40 years protecting himself. And God comes to him in a burning bush and says, I've chosen you, Moses, to go to Pharaoh to cry out, let my people go. Moses does so. And in a series of supernatural events, God sets his people free. They're going to him and this promised land that he's chosen. They have a problem with the Red Sea bordering them in as the Egyptians change their minds about setting them free and come down upon them. But God opens up the Red Sea, gets them across, swallows up the Egyptians to protect his chosen people that he had made through Abraham's covenant. And they go to Mount Sinai. There at the base of Mount Sinai, God does something remarkable. He enters into a covenant with an entire nation, not just one man, Abraham. And he gives them his law to be obeyed. He wants them to be a holy, different kind of people, a moral people. They'll be a witness to the world and all of its pagan godlessness. And he gives them, in the book of Exodus, his law. He gives them the tabernacle where God will be present. He shows up in their midst to love them, care for them, and serve them. And that's the book of Exodus. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a conversation about today's moment of hope. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart, Tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, Thank you, Mark, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry and and more importantly about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and play bingo after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org or they can call me straight up in my cell phone and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks too to also go to our website, 
which is westboulevardministry.org. And there you can see some of our photo galleries. You can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Jen. It's great to be with you as well. Well, in this morning's Moment of Hope, you wrote about how our test becomes our testimony. This is an interesting insight, Jen, and it's one people might not think is true, but it really is. The route to joy is through trials and suffering. Uh, that's what the Bible clearly teaches. For example, in James 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when, parenthesis there, not if, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the way you get to joy and becoming a more complete or mature disciple of Jesus is through trials and suffering. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It does. But it's true. And it is something all of us who've gone through life realize it's truth. God's point of view tells us very clearly that through trials and situations of difficulty, we have joy. And then that test becomes our testimony. One of the ways God uses tests in our lives is to teach us how to be persevering through it all arrive at joy, and then when we can share with others how God was with us and use the test for our greater testimony, then we are greater witnesses for him in the world. Mm -hmm. My son David claimed this verse from James 1 when he was going through a very difficult time as a teenager. Uh, He had two knee surgeries as a budding basketball player, Mm -hmm. one at 13 and one at 15, and we were wondering whether all of his college aspirations to play at that level were going to happen or not, but David kept persevering, quoting that verse over and over again, and found joy in his suffering. But it only happened through steadfastness, perseverance, and endurance, but it did happen. And today, as a 30-year-old, he will use that story as a part of his testimony, Mm -hmm. which allows people to hear him more ably about his love and joy in the Lord. So, Jen, in the end, our trials are used greatly by God because in the end, our messes become a message, Mm -hmm. our tests become a testimony. I love that, David. I love that play on words there. It's, it makes it memorable. And I, it makes me curious as to what God is doing right now in these times with all the tests that we're faced with and our children are faced with. What do you think God is up to? Well, I do know that our physical muscles are only made stronger in resistance. Hmm. And the greater the weight, the greater the resistance, the greater our muscles become stronger. Yeah. So Similarly, I would think in our spiritual lives that it is in the resistance of trials and difficulties and pain that we have to push against, but that makes our spiritual faith muscles stronger as well. We're not guaranteed in this life a Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. I mean, justice was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. 
problems came into this world in the fall in Genesis 3, and all of us living in this life have to go through those trials, but here's the good news. Jesus is with us, and he promises to use those tests and trials as a part of our testimony and message for his glory in life. That is so good. Thank you so much, David. And thank you, Jen. Thank you, listeners. If you would like to receive from me a daily written moment of hope, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there free of charge from my heart to yours to begin your day every morning at 7 a.m. with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We'd love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for the church in the Middle East.